When you own crypto, what really matters is the security and ownership over your assets. Being a part of the bankless nation means having complete sovereignty over your crypto. The easiest way to do that is with a Ledger hardware wallet. A hardware wallet is a little device that manages your private keys for you so you don't have to worry about proper private key management. Your Ledger hardware wallet keeps your private keys private but still lets you have easy access to your crypto. The combination of my Ledger hardware wallet and MetaMask lets me store my crypto assets in the most safe way possible, but still lets me easily access Uniswap or all the other DeFi apps that I use on a daily basis. If you already have a Ledger wallet, you can use the Ledger Live app to participate in some of the money verbs that we discuss in the Bankless program. The Ledger Live app is your headquarters for managing your personal crypto finance. It's a great tool to manage the assets you hold on your ledger, as well as receive a portfolio summary of all the assets that you have stored. Using the Ledger Live app, you can buy Bitcoin, Ether, and stablecoins and have it sent directly to your Ledger hardware wallet, skipping over the trusted exchanges and getting your assets into your control. You can even use the Ledger Live app to swap crypto assets natively inside of the app, so you never need to send your crypto assets away from your ledger to make a trade. Buying a ledger is like buying a fire extinguisher. The best time to get one was yesterday, especially if you're doing something silly, like holding your crypto in a hot wallet that's always connected to the internet. If you haven't gained full control over your crypto yet, go to the link in the show notes and get your ledger today. Bankless Nation, do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world? Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card, and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest-bearing savings account. Again, zero fees. And then you can spend that interest in the real world on a Visa card. So you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. Guys, this is magic. This is the closest thing to the holy grail crypto card and Monolith gives you all of it. You need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card. It's optimized for European listeners. They'll be coming to the US soon. And when you get that Visa card, the Monolith card, tweet about it when you do. I love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless Visa cards. It makes me realize that the revolution is here. Search Monolith in the App Store. All right, Bankless Nation, welcome to State of the Nation number 26. We've got an exciting episode for you today. We're going to talk about defending our nodes, our Bitcoin nodes, our Ethereum nodes. We're going to talk about regulation. We're going to talk about what is going on with the Stable Act, and we have the experts to do that from Coin Center. We're going to introduce them in just a few moments. If this is your first State of the Nation, the drill is we talk about what is happening every week in the crypto ecosystem related to some of the big picture stuff we address on the newsletter and in the podcast and then we try to drop some insights and action items this comes live on tuesdays this is a little late on tuesday but we needed to accommodate some some guest timing uh, and then it comes as well on the podcast so you can catch it in audio format tomorrow david how are you doing today are you excited about this episode yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. And this is uh, something that we often speak about on the Bankless podcast, on the Bankless YouTube is like at this at some point in time in the future, 
we're going to call upon the nation to fight the fight, right? And it's in the stable act and what's going on in DC seems to be perhaps like a tremor, maybe. Maybe it's the real fight. I don't think it's the real fight, but it seems to be like an indication of what's to come. Like there is going to be a fight in, in the world of regulation, in the world of DC, in the world of nation states that's going to uh, be about like what this industry can or cannot do uh, and uh, there, there seems the, the fight seems to be at our doorstep, uh, and so we are we're bringing on a people from the, from the Coin Center, Jerry and Peter, uh, two people that have just top respect, utmost respect out of our industry, to help us get some clarity as to like what is the significance of the Stable Act? Is this the real fight? Is this like kind of the fight before the fight? Like what's going on here? Absolutely. It's going to be good. And if you haven't heard of the Stable Act, uh, it, it kind of made waves last week, but we will introduce it to you. It's some um, a bill in front of Congress right now. We'll be talking about that in just a minute. We should also talk about what's new in the Bankless program, David. Mm -hmm. So we had a, a fantastic episode uh, come out about like the geopolitics, uh, how crypto can emerge as a um, a potential not a replacement, but a decoupling of the nation state with a political philosopher, um, Bruno, and that came out on Monday. What was your take on that episode? Yeah, Bruno, and this is extremely relevant, right? Because the, the whole point of that podcast was to talk about the different domains of the world. Like we, we have different countries, but that's not really what, in my mind, is what defines the seams of the world. We kind of have the West versus East, and there's a, a seam there. Um, there, there's kind of developed versus undeveloped countries, and there's a seam there. Uh, and, and Bruno, as a political philosopher who's traveled the globe, has opinions as to like what these different civilizations of the world, how, what their dispositions are, and importantly, what their dispositions could be towards crypto. Uh, and so we're seeing that play out in, in today's world, and, in, and especially in the conversation that we're having today with the guys from Coin Center, is like, well, America has a specific disposition towards crypto. Uh, and, and we talk about the whole world's disposition with Bruno on the podcast. So that was a ton of fun. Yeah, I like these episodes we've been doing lately with uh, some folks that uh, are maybe a little more crypto skeptical, mm -hmm. or if not, if not skeptical, maybe uh, using the term unconvinced. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not entirely sold. They're, they're not of the religion. I think you've, mm -hmm. you've called them secular before. We recorded another fantastic episode that's coming out next, um, next Monday, next Monday mm -hmm. with Dimitri, who has a fantastic episode, a fantastic podcast called Hidden Forces, and he kind of fits that mold too. Do you want to give folks a preview? Yeah, Hidden Forces is one of my favorite podcasts, all about talking about the the hidden forces of the world that control our our finances, uh, the economies of the world, the politics of the world, the culture of the world, just the the movers and shakers, the things that are moving and shaking the world those subject matters come on to Dimitri's podcast. And so he, I, I call him on the crypto periphery, right? Like he understands crypto. He understands our industry. He understands the culture, uh, but he's not in the middle of it, right? He's not in the religion, right? Uh, and so like, that's a very like biased, sober perspective to have. And so getting that perspective on the Bankless podcast is definitely something that we want to do. So stay tuned to hear that episode on Monday. So that is next Monday, guys. We've got some ETH content on the horizon as well. We're doing a bull case for Ethereum with some of the biggest ETH bulls we know. We're going to be talking <laughs> about that. And then we're having uh, Ether Capital. I would call Ether Capital. This is a publicly traded company based in Canada. They're almost like the micro strategy of Ether. They are mm -hmm. buying Ether, putting on their balance sheet, and they are a publicly traded company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Super mm -hmm. excited to talk, about, uh, to talk with them about public companies 
and crypto on the balance sheet. So a lot coming at you soon. But David, let's start with the question I always ask you at the beginning of every State of the Nation, that's this. What is the State of the Nation today, sir? The State of the Nation is joining the ranks. We are ranking up, right? And so, you know, there, there, we, in the, in, at least in crypto Twitter, there's a bunch of fighting going on between Bitcoin and Ethereum. But as soon as this Rohan guy, who's one of the leaders behind the, the Stable Act, joined the Twitter fray, it seemed to be like the, the Bitcoin and Ethereum's world, just like the, the division between that world just like melted away. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum versus the outside world. And as somebody who like it plays in both camps, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the melding of the communities to like kind of unite against like this common enemy, which is top down bad regulation. And so like we're ranking up, we're, we're joining together, we're joining forces, and that is the state of the nation. That is nice. It's like, it's like a, a unifying force, I, mm -hmm. I suppose, amidst all the tribalism and rancor yep. in crypto. There are a shared set of values that I think every crypto community, at least in the decentralized crypto community, shares. So it's fantastic when we can come together around this. All right, with that, we should get to our main event. I want to introduce two individuals, guests from Coin Center. Coin Center is a nonprofit research and advocacy center focused on public policy issues. They're based in Washington, D.C., in the heart of the capital, fighting the good fight. I feel like anytime we have a problem with crypto regulation, we put the bat signal in the, in the air, and in comes Jerry, in, in, in comes Peter, in comes Coin Center to, to help us with these regulatory issues. Jerry Brito is the executive director. I want to welcome you, Jerry. And Peter Van uh, Valkenberg is a research director at Coin Center. Gentlemen, it is fantastic to have you. How are you doing today? And very well. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, great. Awesome. All right. Well, you know what? I want to start with this, this kind of question. So Jimmy Lear said this. I read <laughs> uh, he is the, the CEO of um, Circle, of course, which issues staple coins. He said, shit is about to get real. Guys, is shit about to get real here? Like, did something major happen last week? Or is that just crypto Twitter making much ado about nothing? That's a good question. Um, so look, I mean, uh, you're referring specifically to the Stable Act. And, you know, um, it's serious because it's, it's kind of a frontal assault on um, people's ability to um, run software, essentially. Okay. So in that way, it's real. We should care about it. On the, on the flip side, um, this is a bill that was introduced with, you know, like a couple of weeks, like maybe less than two weeks left in, for Congress. Um, so it's definitely not going to move this Congress, although it'll probably be reintroduced next Congress. And it was introduced um, by Rashida Tlaib, who is a um, member of Congress, who is part of the very, very progressive wing of the Democratic Party, um, who um, you can say really is not in the mainstream um, and not certainly in the leadership of the Democratic Party. So even though Democratic Party controls the House, um, this is a bill that, I, you know, I would be surprised if, if it moves a lot. It might. Um, Chairman Waters, um, who chairs the House Financial Services, might um, decide to get behind it um, and maybe you might see some movement. Um, but I think it would be difficult. And even if it passed the House, it would also have to pass the Senate. And, you know, the Senate is where House bills go to die. Senate is the, uh, the so um, in, cooling in, plate of democracy. The cooling plate. <laughs> 
cooling saucer, right? That's what Jefferson said. Awesome. Okay. Um, so look, I don't think this bill is going to pass anytime soon, but this bill is a frontal assault. And I think, um, look, I, I think a lot of the motivation for this bill is Libra. Mm -hmm. And if we were to see another thing like Libra, um, you can imagine this bill, like, you know, um, uh, getting a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, um, juice behind it. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what I think. That said, the Stable Act is not the only thing that's happening in DC. Um, and there are tons of other little things that could become big um, that could necessitate a fight. Um, there are also good things that are happening. Mm -hmm. So let's actually start there because I, I don't, like I alluded to, I don't think the Stable Act is going to be like the big thing that we all focus on, but it does indicate why this is important, right? And what could be, right? But, but let's start at the very beginning. Like Bitcoin, Ethereum, these are like internet scale organizations. They don't exist inside of a nation state. They're censorship resistant. They're permissionless. They're non-sovereign. So like, why do we even need you guys? Like, why do we need people to defend this in, in, in regulatory institutions like Washington, DC? Like, I thought this was a non-sovereign system. Like, why, why are we talking to regulators in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think that, look, I think you're absolutely right that something like Ethereum or Bitcoin um, are unstoppable machines, right? Um, and so uh, they're going to be running. The question is, are they going to be useful machines, right? Are, are you going to be able to connect to it and use it um, in your country? And more importantly, is it going to be something that a wide number of people are going to be able to use it? Um, and so there, you know, that's something that nation states, for better or worse, have, um, uh, you know, can definitely uh, affect. Um, and so, and look, I mean, I think that networks like Ethereum and Bitcoin are incredibly compatible with the values of liberal um, democratic Western nations like the United States. And so um, nation states and governments and regulation um, shouldn't be an impediment to the, the use uh, of these networks. And so um, if, if that's true, you need somebody to talk to government. Um, if nothing else, you just explain to them, hey, this is how it works. This is, this is, how, this is, this is <laughs> yes. what it is, this is how it works technically. Um, here is where um, maybe there are gaps created uh, between the technology and the law. Um, if you're going to fill those gaps, here are ways that you can do it that's not going to destroy the potential of this thing. Um, and so that, that's what Coin Center does. Um, and, you know, we're kind of like, you know, we, a big role model for us is like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, right? So the internet is as you say, a sovereign, um, uh, you know, internet scale network, right? It is the internet. Um, why, do, you know, why does it need uh, representatives? Well, for the same reason. These are unowned public goods. Nobody owns Bitcoin. Nobody owns Ethereum. Nobody owns the internet. Um, and while companies that run on top of these networks can hire their own lawyers, their own lobbyists to represent their interests, you need somebody to represent the interests of the public good this unowned network and to represent the interests of people 
um, to have the freedom to use these networks. And so like the EFF, you know, we at Coin Center are kind of self-appointed um, uh, champions uh, uh, for um, open cryptocurrency networks. Yeah. So Jerry, worth I, worth okay. noting that we don't represent any companies. We don't represent any specific entities in the space. We Important. have a mission and we're there to defend the mission. And the mission is to defend people's freedom to use permissionless blockchain networks. That's how, how did we get so you mentioned the EFF, I believe, Jerry. I'm actually not super familiar with the EFF. Um, I am a bit more familiar with like the fact that actually um, the internet went fairly well from a regulation perspective in the 90s, right? Like uh, there, there were definitely some bumps along the way, but we got it done. America accepted the internet. And this was pretty novel at the time. There's some cryptography involved. There's a permissionless communication network, some scary things around copyright, all sorts of things. Yeah. How did we do that? And like, can that success be repeated for crypto? Because crypto, I guess, is one, it's in a different timeline, right? So like the, um, the US as a nation in the 90s appears to me to be a bit more moderate and less polarized than it is now. So we got that issue we're dealing with. And the second issue is crypto, of course, um, hits on a few things that the nation state might be a little bit, um, I guess, scared to relinquish control of uh, around financial transactions and the essence of, of money. But like, are you guys optimistic that we can actually repeat the success of internet adoption uh, with, with crypto and, and kind of like, for, forge our way through this path, make, make this happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, wouldn't be doing this full time if I wasn't optimistic that we could do it. Um, I, I do think we can replicate the success of the 90s, but that didn't just happen, uh, you know, as you were saying. We didn't just do it because we're America. It took a lot of work from people like the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, right? Mm. So as, exactly as you pointed out, um, there were big concerns related to things that nation states are sensitive about, like cryptography, right? Cryptography was something that until very recently, quite frankly, until the 90s, um, was the exclusive domain of nation states. Uh, encryption was, right? And uh, uh, the EFF was instrumental in fighting that fight um, so that encryption could be widely used by the public. It wasn't like, you know, we weren't, um, again, it's the kind of thing where it's just math so that um, you can't stop it, right? But the government can severely restrict mass adoption of it, right? Mm -hmm. And thanks to people like the EFF, um, uh, we were able to win those fights, right? So, it, it, you know, it took a lot of um, lobbying and a lot of litigation um, to win those battles and same for copyright. Yeah, and I'd say, that, I'd say that, you know, there's collateral damage in the process of this, you know, determining how government will or will not accept these new technologies. So people can be put in jail. I, you know, I think ultimately these technologies are somewhat unstoppable, that in the long run we'll have shared networks, we'll have the internet as we already have. But in that process, a lot of lives can be ruined. Um, so you look at the, the, first, the first wave of crypto wars, which was over encryption technology, things like PGP, uh, and thank God we had organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation to stand up for actual scientists, cryptographers, who wanted to publish their crypt cryptography standards, but the government had labeled those cryptography standards as weapons, as mm. munitions 
that you're not allowed to export out of the country because you're literally sharing weapons with our enemies. And the EFF said, look, these cryptographers just want to publish these, these mathematical equations effectively as you publish a book. And it's their right in America in a liberal democracy to do that without your prior restraint. And the EFF, broadly speaking, won those cases uh, and the defendants won those cases. And that's why we have things like SSL today. We, you know, we might have had it anyway, but lives would have been destroyed in the process. Uh, and, and maybe America wouldn't be the leader in the internet. Um, maybe it would be some other country, or maybe it would even be slowed down to the point where we were just now starting to enjoy, you know, websites instead of what's next, which might be, you know, cryptocurrencies and things like that. So that's optimistic. That makes me optimistic. But also what makes me a little bit skeptical is, is that was 20, 30 years ago. That was a generation ago. Like things change. Perspectives and cultures and values change. And, and especially in a world where there seems to be so much polarization and there seems to be just like a lot of desire to make, finally make change happen. It seems to be that like the uh, ascribing is like, hey, we did it back. You know, if we fight the fight like we fought it back 30 years ago, we'll get the same outcomes. Well, it's a different world nowadays. So like maybe what, what, what do you think is, is different about this world that might not be the same, might, might not make this, the fight the same fight? Um, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not. So yeah, you're right that it's a different world. And so as a result, people who, you know, you can't necessarily apply the same kinds of tactics that you might when, when it comes to lobbying or, or whatever, you know, like, I, like, you know, we now have Twitter, right? So I'm not going to fax out a press release. I'm going to use Twitter. So, <laughs> um, but I think those are all tactics. I think ultimately at the end of the day, the spite, um, all the polarization and what have you, um, uh, America still has the same values as always. And I think, the internet was successful because it was able to appeal to those values, right? If you think about it, the internet is completely open and permissionless. It's the West, right? It's, it's a wild frontier where you can go and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an electronic frontier, if you will, right? We can go and settle. This is, this is the most American thing in the world. While we were building, you know, while we in, the, in America were building the internet, um, uh, our friends in France were building Minitel, right? Which is going to win out. So, um, you know, I think if we can just remind policymakers of that, that, that hasn't changed, right? Policymakers for both left and right still see that. Um, and so, you know, we can, the story to tell is, look, while um, China is building uh, DCEP, um, we can build completely open and permissionless networks. And which do you think is going to win out, right? If you have any self-confidence in your values, you, you know it's going to be open and permissionless networks. Um, so, so, you know, I think an important thing is to make sure that um, something like crypto does not become a partisan issue, right? If it does, then it becomes much harder, right? And to date, we've been very lucky that it's not. Um, we have um, strong champions on both the left and right and the Republicans and the Democrats, and we have critics and detractors on both the left and the right. Um, so I think that's very good. 
Speaking of uh, strong champions, I, I, I want to bring up your recent uh, Gitcoin grant because um, you know, folks that are tuned into Bankless, of course, they, they, they know what Gitcoin is. It's, it's a quadratic funding mechanism with a match, matching mechanism, which essentially allows people in the crypto community to sort of vote with their dollars and have that vote amplified for the projects they support. And maybe in a way it was kind of good timing for this stable act news to come out because I, I just want to share the Gitcoin page because it's, it's super exciting what the crypto community, community can do once it is uh, incentivized to act. This is, I think, less than a week old, maybe just over a week old, but you guys just put out your grant, I think, at the end of, end of last week. So it's probably only a, a few days that this grant has been active and you've already raised close to, when you consider matching, 158, that's die, 1,000 die, which is, of course, US dollars. Um, have you been like really excited to see how the <laughs> crypto community has rallied around Coin Center in the wake of some of this regulatory news and uncertainty? Has it been surprising to you? Has it been exciting? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's been amazing. Um, we were just completely floored um, by the response uh, from the crypto community, um, especially the Ethereum community, you know, uh, using Gitcoin. Um, and we're like incredibly uh, grateful. Um, you know, what can I say? Um, it's a kind of thing where, um, look, we weren't planning any of this. Um, you know, Niraj, yeah, Niraj Agarwal, who um, runs our communications, um, he's like, you know, we should start a, a you know, a Gitcoin account. We think, yeah, I think it's a good way to do it. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and it just sort of coincided that at the same time that we started this Gitcoin um, you know, grant proposal and put it out there, the Stable Act made clear what's at stake, right? There are frontal assaults that come. And I think that um, uh, really drove people to contribute, which, you know, we're incredibly um, uh, grateful for. Because, you know, a lot of the work that we do isn't so clear, right? A lot of the work we do, we can't ever talk about because it's, it's sort of like um, avoiding things that you never find out would have happened. Right. And we can't talk about it, um, you know, uh, but like, you know, something that the Ethereum community, I think, isn't aware of is, um, you know, Coin Center was, um, you know, if not instrumental, I think pretty um, uh, influential in making sure that the SEC understood that Ethereum um, is not a security. Ethereum as a running network is not a security. Right. And we spent a lot of time with the SEC making that case starting in what one peter when 2015 uh, so so we were in in a meetings in their interdivisional working group that was focused on cryptocurrencies back when ethereum was brand new long before the dow um, crowdfund and then the dow report from the sec just giving them the information that is quite honest information that you know look bitcoin is open source protocol people are going to take that code rewrite that code build brand new networks and if they're actually running like Bitcoin, they're not securities. If, on the other hand, somebody is um, at the center of that network and everyone relies on that person, if it's not sufficiently decentralized, as Director Hendon later put it, um, or if they're making promises about that network, like I guarantee you it'll be 10x in, in two years, then it is a security. And it makes sense that the SEC can carve a delicate path to go after the scams and leave the true innovation out of securities regulation. But it was not a foregone conclusion in 2015. Yeah. I, so, you know, just, I think it's, 
Oh, go ahead. Just, just to emphasize um, for like the Ethereum community, how important right. that that was, right? Back to what Peter was saying earlier. It, it's not that the SEC might not at some point in the future change its mind on Ethereum, but th this allowed them to provide clarity far sooner and accelerated the development of um, such things as like if Ether is listed as a commodity, it can be listed by the CFTC. Um, it, it's it's it also puts a, a lens on the path for tokens to, to move towards decentralization. So it really just accelerates the industry in the US and accelerates the adoption of what we all want to see, which is a more open financial world. So maybe the outcome would have been inevitably in 10 or 15 years that like this regulation would you know, happen. But what you guys are doing is really accelerating adoption. And it's a bunch of quiet work that um, I think folks don't know goes on behind the scenes with these types of issues. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I'm not sure if we're accelerating, but what I like to think about what we're doing for all networks is making sure that the space exists so that you can just do your innovation and make it available um, so that people can use it. Um, you know, and, and yeah, because the alternative is there can be a lot of roadblocks <laughs> that right. might just lead people to say, meh, I'm not going to work on this. I can work on something else. Arguing that Ether is a triple point asset would have been way harder if Ether was also a security. <laughs> so that, that is definitely valuable. And, and the, the link between Coin Center and Gitcoin, I think, is, is a really elegant one because you guys are protecting public goods without actually representing a company, right? Uh, yeah. So there's, there's, you guys don't represent anyone. There's no stakeholders behind you. You guys just represent the industry. And I can imagine that like getting funding for that is actually kind of hard because of your specifically your neutrality in the whole thing. Like if you guys were sponsored by a company, Coin Center would be a different entity. It wouldn't be Coin Center. It would be something else. And so that's, that's specifically where Gitcoin comes into play because Gitcoin, yeah. that, it, Gitcoin is meant to fund that gap of companies that have extremely, ex perhaps the most significant roles to play, but don't actually have a way to get funded. Uh, and so the, the alignment between Coin Center and Gitcoin, I think is, is one that's going to play out in a very long relationship that I'm excited to see unfold. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say historically, we've, we've generally gotten about half our donations from individuals, usually very generous individuals who understand our mission and wanna make sure we succeed. Um, but this Gitcoin situation will significantly increase the number of donations, mm -hmm. more smaller donations. And that's exactly what we want. We want to be representatives of a sort of grassroots movement mm -hmm. to say, look, this is the technology of the future. It's important. It's important for America. It's important for all of us. Let's build it. Yeah. And I, I should hasten to say that yeah, so Coin Center is a public good in itself, yeah. right? what we do. Um, uh, and our work is supported, as Peter says, about half of our support comes from individuals. Um, the other half does come from companies and investors in the space, um, but it's strings free, right? Like, um, you know, this is the work that we do. If you want to support us, great. If you want to support us, you know, we'll tell you at the end of a year, this is what we've done. If you want to support us, great. If you don't, you know, that's okay. Jerry sometimes got kind of like a Scarface mentality with fundraising. <laughs> He's like, you know, we don't have to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but our, our independence um, is very important because it's what uh, makes it possible for folks at the SEC, for example, to trust us, right? We're not, we're not selling our own book. Mm -hmm. um, we really want to explain to you exactly what, it, what this is, how it works, and give you honest advice about, um, uh, you know, what are the risks and how you could address those risks.
Well, guys, um, we want to get you to uh, a quarter of a million on Gitcoin at least. So <laughs> any, any bankless listeners watching this support this excellent work. All it takes is a die, one die, mm-hmm. and that could be amplified a whole lot with Gitcoin matching. I guys, just we put should... the link in the YouTube chat box. You can awesome. go right there. Mm-hmm. Thanks, David. Thank you. We should talk about the Stable Act because that has been um, sort of the catalyst for a lot of these things. And a- as you mentioned at the outset, sort of shows what's at stake in crypto and this, this regulatory conversation. Um, can you maybe uh, explain what the Stable Act actually says and what it does? And Peter, you put, put together a fantastic post on it. But for, for those that weren't part of the conversation, haven't read it, what's the summary here? Yeah, so it, it amends federal banking laws, say that stable coins, and it defines that term, the term has obviously never been defined before in law. Stable coins can only be issued by uh, federal banks that have FDIC insurance effectively. So there's this strong push to say, look, if it's dollar backed, uh, and that's that's interpreted broadly as even if somebody is is saying this is dollar backed, but it's some algorithmic thing, or is someone saying this is um, this is pegged to a dollar, or it will reflect the dollar? Even using the term dollar in marketing will fit you into the definition of stablecoin. And then this law, if it was to become law, it's just a bill, of course, would say you can't do that unless you're a chartered federal bank, which I, I don't need to explain. It probably sounds like it is is very difficult to become. And an ordinary person would never become a chartered federal bank and get FDIC insurance. And so this is, um, you know, make no mistake, this is quite radical uh, because not only does this necessarily cover, um, you know, like an asset-backed stablecoin that's that's centralized, like a USDC or a Tether. Uh, this could cover things that are like Maker, uh, like Dai, where you have just a lot of language that says it's it, it's pegged to or it tries to equilibrate towards a dollar. This kind of covers it because it got such a broad definition. And it would also interestingly cover things like like dollar dollar digital dollars you keep with PayPal or with Venmo, just like pre crypto money transmission stuff, which for decades has been regulated by state licensing and never as a federal banking activity. So this is sweeping. And, you know, to put it briefly, and the reason why this is a real threat to permissionless networks, because there are decent arguments to be made that if you're claiming that you're backing something, you should be regulated in some way. So you're not scamming people, you know, not actually holding dollars. But this goes far beyond just that common sense regulation. This says that even if you're, um, basically facilitating somebody who's not a bank issuing or passing or uttering a stable coin uh, from person to person, you as someone facilitating that activity could be um, performing an illegal act in this law. And what is facilitating a die transaction maybe look like? It could very easily just look like I'm an Ethereum miner or staker and I staked or mined for a block that ended up having a die transaction in it. So you may not have any idea that you facilitated that activity. And quite frankly, you wouldn't if you were mining a a purpose agnostic blockchain network, because there's tons of transactions in there. Some of them might be stablecoin, some of them are not. And if that mere act of running that server on the internet that performs that function makes you liable of breaking federal banking laws, you know, I don't think it would destroy Ethereum, but it would certainly destroy people's ability to you know, honestly and legally run Ethereum nodes in the US. And that's extremely bad for innovation. 
So uh, there seems to be a number of different uh, stakeholders that seem to be primarily affected here. We have the centralized issuers of stable coins. That's like USDC, Tether would fall into this camp. Uh, Libra, uh, also now known as DM, is, is also very much in this camp. There's also the decentralized issuers, which is DAI or anything algorithmic, right? So like maybe even something as niche as empty set dollar would be uh, a protocolized version of a, a, a stable coin that pegs to a dollar. And so that's now falls under the purview and then there's even node operators and so like it gets even more and more expansive as we go out and now we, we, we want to touch on all three of those cohorts of people but i kind of want to be a little nitpicky here and get your guys's perspective here because like what is a stable coin and it seems to only it seems to be too easy to route around the wording that this uh, uh, uh bill has used because like what about a token that is backed by gold like that's pretty stable that's a I, you could call that a stable coin. What about a, what about a token that represents an Aussie dollar or a euro? Or what about something that is stable to its own basket of, of, of you know, its, its own, you know, index? And so, like, what kind of one of the questions is, like, how much have these people really thought about, like, the loopholes that they're creating? Because, like, you could just, like, okay, we're just going to make something that is stable to, uh, you know, one and a half dollars or, or something that's stable to gold or just like, just route around the problem. Like it seems to be really, really, really arbitrary. It, it, is, is that your guys' take as well? Because that seems to be my perspective. It seems to be like there's a number, there's also like stable-ish coins, like things that definitely don't peg to one certain thing, but they still are much more stable than their asset. That's the, the rise system. It seems to be that there wasn't much thought put into like parameterizing this thing. Well, I mean, so, um, Peter, you, you, you've read the law more carefully than me, um, but it, it would cover basically dollar pegged um, mm -hmm. uh, stable coins. And the reason for that is because what the law is, you know, what the uh, authors and the sponsors of the bill are concerned with, it seems to be, is systemic risk to the U.S. dollar banking system, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're addressing. Yeah. So something like a gold-backed, um, token um, would not, I don't think, and I'll, I'll defer to Peter since he read it more closely, I don't think would fall here, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think a um, Aussie dollar backed uh, would fall either. Really what they're, the reason they're doing this mm -hmm. is they're targeting what they perceive to be systemic risk presented by what they would call shadow mm -hmm. banking in the form of PayPal or yeah. So to, to give the supporters of the bill some credit, they are very passionate. Um, and you look at, say, Rohan Gray on Twitter, that dollars are a sort of public function of the United States government. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and things like systemic risk are not just about counterparty risk. They're not about simply situations where the company that's holding the dollars and people have the tokens that, that represent the claims on the dollars, they don't have enough dollars to make good to their customers. That would be counterparty risk. And we do have FDIC insurance for that reason. But it, you know, I, I've, I've seen Rohan talk also about how the risk I'm concerned about, he would say, is also the risk of not having full control over the monetary supply mm -hmm. uh, in the way that he thinks um, the federal government should have greater control over the monetary supply. That like the supply of dollars in circulation matters and he wants only banks to be in the business of increasing or decreasing that supply effectively. But that's a very uh, modern monetary he, he is an MIT scholar, he's a chartalist. So his, his notion of what money is, and you know, money's a crazy thing. It's easy to have lots of different notions about yes. 
is, is very state oriented. So the fact that this is dollar focused is partially deliberate. Uh, right. I still don't agree with it, but it's, it's mm. deliberate. And I, I will add just as far as the legislative language, it's worth noting that it also applies to the, uh, to a peg to any other state or national currency. So it would, it would apply oh. to like a Euro peg thing. Oh, okay. And there's, there's, again, this is drafted incredibly broadly because they really want to go after everyone with this potentially. Mm -hmm. There's a, a paragraph towards the end of the definition of stable coin that says it's pegged in such a manner that regardless of intent has the effect of creating a reasonable expectation or belief among the general public that the instrument will retain a nominal redemption value that is so stable as to render the nominal redemption value effectively fixed. So if you had like a Big Mac dollar or a Big Mac coin that was going to always retain about Big Mac purchasing power. <laughs> this is covering it. Yeah. Wow. What, it's, was that their intent, Peter? Like, I, you know, it, was it their intent to be this broad? I mean, it's affecting a lot of parties in the U.S. or this potentially would affect a lot. So centralized issuers, right? You, you yeah. really put a handcuff on like USDC and the things that Coinbase is doing. And then also you definitely put some handcuffs on decentralized protocols like DAI. And perhaps most precariously, if uh, an individual out of their home is running an Ethereum node that uh, runs a transaction that is prohibited by this sort of a law, then they might have some culpability here in the process too. This seems incredibly broad. I think part of me wonders whether that broadness was the intent or whether back to, to David's question, if it was just, well, there's some education required. They didn't realize it would be, they, they were trying to maybe target, you know, Facebook and Libra and they didn't right. realize all of these downstream effects just because they're not fully enmeshed in the crypto ecosystem. What's, yeah. what's your take? So we've had lots of situations like that in the past where we go to Congress and someone's written a bill and they maybe don't fully understand the consequences because they don't fully understand the technology that it might regulate. This is not one of those examples. So oh, wow. this is intentionally broad because right. of this deeply held belief and a genuine belief that I disagree with that if it's dollar related or if it has to do with the money supply of the nation, it should be heavily regulated. So, so this is intentional and it's what's interesting about it is it's broader than you think even when you read the already broad seeming language so when we wrote a blog post about this the other day one of the first things i pointed out is why is this regulating stable coins which are dollar liabilities but not regulating all the other non-bank dollar liabilities out there like all the money that paypal and venmo and square cash hold for people um, those aren't stable coins as we tend to understand them and they're they're huge liabilities, right? So shouldn't those also be regulated by you know, putting them under the purview of federal banks rather than keeping them in the state money transmission licensing framework where they exist today? And Rohan, um, to his credit, uh, came out immediately after we published the blog post and said, no, it's meant to cover all of those companies. Wow. Oh my God, wow. We define so stablecoins so broadly that it would, that a PayPal, the digital balance on PayPal, a digital balance in your Apple Pay wallet would be a stable coin and wow. then they'd have to do it through federal banking laws. To how which about my this? response is that's kind of Trojan horse. -y. Yeah. I uh, how about say that down there in the post actually. And then I said it again on Twitter. This is, this has got balls, um, not to be <laughs> crude, but you know, this is, this is strong legislation with a very deliberate intent to sweep widely. It's also why I think it has much less of a chance of passing because it's, it's right. really out there. So, right. so Peter, I've got some Starbucks gift cards, right? And uh, they, they have a lot of stable coins, I think. Like, 
Does, would Starbucks be required to open a bank charter in order to issue Starbucks cards in this sort of wide sweeping bill? You know, I hadn't actually thought of gift cards. I'd have to reread the language with respect to gift cards because normally those get out of money transmission licensing requirements because they're only accepted at a number of authorized, um, you know, uh, acceptors or, or. There we or, go. We or, found our loophole. <laughs> but, but this doesn't, this doesn't have a, a so-called closed loop exemption like the money transmission statutes do. So maybe Starbucks cards are covered as well, actually in this. Mm. Wow. Mm. So I, I want to ask about, um, there, there seems to be a lot of intent which my mind after seeing, seeing a lot of intent goes to the motivations. To me, my, my, there's, a, there's a decent amount of me that's a conspiracy theorist. And so I'm like, <laughs> the banks are behind this. In right? the like, crypto space? That's weird. It's <laughs> <laughs> so unheard of. In my mind, this is just like a huge extension of banking infrastructure. And you know, banks kind of are the big arm of the government to exert power right like we exert power over uh, things like north korea and iran by cutting them out from banking services um, payment services and so like it seems to be that like requiring everyone to be a bank uh is in uh, some way maybe that's good for the banking industry but it's definitely good for the power of the central government right because it's bringing everyone under their fold under their control right what so like and, and this Rohan Gray character is definitely interesting because like we said, he, his deal generally seems to be like pro-government, just pro-state. He's a statist. He likes the state to have the, the power and control that it should have. Like, what, what are the motivations behind pushing this thing? Because like, there's also the conversation of like, uh, uh, Rashida Taleb, I think I pronounce her name, like she had her own like verbalized intent, which is to, you know, protect the little guy, protect minorities. Rohan Gray seems to have his intent. Like what's the motivation really pushing forward the Stable Act? That's the kind of thing that maybe you should have Rohan on and, and ask him. And I, and I think he'd be probably very game to, to come on. Um, but I mean, just looking at his stated position, again, it's to address what he perceives to be um, a systemic risk. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, as Peter was just saying, you know, it's the view of not just him, but I, I think it, you know, as you were saying, money, mon modern monetary theorists, um, of all stripes that, um, you know, what is, you know, that money is a public good that should be controlled by the state and that the, you know, money supply, um, uh, you know, is something that only the state should be able to control and the way you control that is by controlling the banks. And so it's kind of funny. Uh, so I, I can tell you kind of categorically that this is not a plot of the big banks um, because I, again, you know, Rohan had a hand in, in crafting this, Talib introduced it. And I can think of, you know, no um, uh, greater enemy of the banks than Rohan and representative Talib. That said, it's kind of funny that what they want is to create a ton more banks potentially. Um, so, that, you know, that's, Funny, it sounds ironic, but no, it's not if you consider that, you know, they think that banks should be heavily regulated so that they are, you know, essentially arms of the state um, carrying out a public good. That's your view. And to Rohan's credit, um, you know, uh, Rohan actually was on our podcast, Peter interviewed him, and we had him on because um, Representative Tlaib, um, a few months before, so this was, I don't know, Peter, when was it in the Four summer? Four months ago. Four months ago, Representative Tlaib, um, floated a um, draft bill, it was never introduced. And this was, if you remember at the time when um, it, you know, there were problems getting 
COVID relief out to people um, uh, by the federal government. Um, and uh, she, she floated a bill that would have created a digital dollar. Um, it wouldn't be the central bank doing it. It would have been the treasury. And the neat thing about this digital dollar that she proposed, and I'm sure Rohan had a hand in, uh, uh, in crafting that bill as well, it would have been a token-based bearer instrument. It was a digital dollar, and that would be, or at least had the intent to be, I, I sort of um, will, will quibble a little bit about it, the, the um, uh, sort of uh, function to get it to, to be that way, but it, it had the intention to be fully anonymous, right? So they wanted to create digital cash, which yeah. is awesome, right? So Rohan is all in favor of building bearer, you know, token-based bearer, completely anonymous digital cash, as long as the state does it. But only the government should, should be the one doing right. that. that yeah. That's just, that's their, that's their view. And that, you know, that's a legitimate point of view, I guess. Um, it's interesting. So, and to go back to the modern monetary theory piece, that bill, the, the creating the, the digital money was one piece. The other piece of the bill was minting a trillion dollar coin. I remember this. Right. So you would create a trillion dollars and then um, distribute a trillion dollars through this digital dollar scheme. So anyhow, we, you know, we agree. So, you know, it's interesting. So he, um, I would sort of temper the, you know, I mean, clearly Rohan is a quote unquote status that some people might label him, but you know, it's a status that wants to build completely anonymous bearer digital cash. Yeah. And his, right? his, so his he, stated he, he reasons right. for that. His stated reasons for that in in the podcast where we when we had him on were fear of totalitarianism yeah. that if if you don't have the ability to have anonymous financial transactions as we do through physical cash and as he thinks we should have with digital cash which i agree then you'll have a centralized database of everything that everyone ever buys every service everyone uses every embarrassing thing they do or political contribution that they make and democracy can't function like that so I, you know, there may be, you could think of this as cognitive dissonance, but you could also think of this as someone who just thinks that money is this public good that the state should have monopoly control over, but that ultimately the money should be extremely user sovereign and private. Um, I mean, what, what I would point out to Rohan, and I, I want, Peter, you probably did it on the podcast is, um, you know, we agree on that, that we should have that user sovereign private money in order to prevent totalitarianism. But to me, the way to do that is not, as the bill would have, to create a board, a privacy board of political appointees to oversee and ensure that. The way to do that is with trustless um, uh, you know, uh, uh, mechanisms like Ethereum and Bitcoin. Yeah. Fun fundamentally, where I think this comes down to, which might be interesting to your listeners who have more philosophical or economic bent, is can people band together to provide public goods right. or must we trust the government to provide public goods? And can those two solutions coexist or would one chisel away at the other and therefore need to be outlawed? Obviously, Coin Center believes very strongly that individuals acting in their own volition and freedom and with innovation and passion can make their own public goods. Uh, and we don't need to have government monopoly over things like monetary systems. I think they can coexist.
Uh, as do we, as does the Bankless Nation. And we <laughs> want to get into that a little bit more because there is some some overlap, I think, with what uh, Taleb and, and some of the folks behind this bill want to do and what crypto wants to do. But before we get to that, we'll talk about DAI, we'll talk about some other things. We've got to jump to our sponsors who have made this show possible. So we'll be back in two minutes. If you're going bankless, you need a good Ethereum wallet. Argent is one of the best wallets for the bankless journey. Two words to describe it, simple and secure. What do I mean by that? First, simple. There's a mobile app you download. You can get set up in 60 seconds. This makes going DeFi easy, easy, easy. That means one tap access. You can trade any token at the best price. You can earn interest and invest with Aave, Set, Compound, Uniswap, many of the other money Legos that we talk about on the Bankless program. Second, it's secure. Its security is battle-tested been in the field for more than two years, securing millions of dollars. That's why some people now have over a million dollars in their Argent wallet. In some ways, it's even more secure than a cold storage wallet because you can set transfer limits on the daily basis. There's no seed phrases to lose. It's always backed up through social recovery. You can even use Argent as a multi-sig for large transfers. Lastly, they just launched a DEX router. That means if you're trading in Argent, you get access to the best rates across the top 10 exchanges in one tap. You can go to argent.link slash bankless to download the Argent wallet on iOS and Android and get started. That's argent.link slash bankless. Wiren is DeFi's first self-building project on Ethereum, focused on producing products for those who are interested in earning yield in DeFi. Wiren's various products are all built to suit each individual investor's preferred level of risk, from various vault strategies that leverage DeFi tokens to the safer Earn system which relies on stablecoins. Vaults are aggressive yield farming robots, each with a unique strategy that is designed to maximize the yield of the deposited asset. Wiren employs some of the most informed developers in DeFi to keep the vault strategies updated with the various yield farming opportunities on Ethereum. For customers who are more risk adverse, the Wiren's Earn product may be for you. Earn is a yield aware dynamic money market that automatically seeks the best interest rates across the various DeFi protocols and regularly migrates your deposited stablecoins between the DeFi protocols that are returning the best yield at the present moment. Wiren is a system that is just a little over four months old, so things are still very much an experiment. However, this hasn't stopped people from depositing over $700 million worth of assets into the Wiren system in order to find yield on Ethereum. Perhaps the people that deposited all this money were we're tired of constantly making daily transactions to follow the best DeFi interest rates, and maybe the gas fees that they were paying ended up eating too much into their profits. With Wiren, it doesn't remove the risk of these various protocols that it leverages, but it does remove the overhead of constantly trying to make sure you're finding the best yield, and also so that you don't have to pay for gas to switch up your assets. Check out the products that Wiren has to offer at yearn.finance. That's Y-E-A-R-N.finance which they also have a nice statistics page to see what other people are doing. All right, we're back with Jerry and Peter from Coin Center. Guys, where we left off, we were talking about modern monetary theory and sort of the, I guess the political agenda this, this kind of might be coming from. And there are also some, I think, areas uh, of common ground between that, maybe call it wing of politics in America and what we are trying to do in the crypto community, particularly in the bankless community. Um, one of the purported purposes of this bill is to help essentially the, the unbanked, right? And isn't that what crypto does? I mean, 
the title of the show and the movement that David and I are part of is bankless using systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum to essentially uh, bank without a bank in a permissionless way. That means open access to everyone in America, credibly neutral, independent of, you know, race, independent of socioeconomic class, a credibly neutral banking system for the world. That seems to be uh, very much a part of the spirit of um, folks in Congress like uh, Tlaib. Is there common ground there or are they not recognizing that side of the equation? Maybe we'll start with you, Jerry. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there is common ground at a high level, right? And so I, I think that's, you know, you can, um, we, we, have, we have shared concerns, right? So um, I think where we depart is, and, and again, I encourage you to have somebody like Rohan on to have him speak for himself because I, you know, I don't want to do that. Um, but you know, I'll try to steal in what I think somebody like him would say. And that's number one, you know, I think he'd be, or somebody like him would be perfectly happy to have, to you know, let people experiment with um, building um, monetary experiments like Ethereum or Bitcoin. Um, I think the problem he sees is when um, people start issuing things that they call dollars, right? Because again, dollars, this is public good that can only be provided by the state. Um, and in doing that, um, perhaps creating systemic risk. And so what, what does he mean by that? Well, what I take it to mean is um, you have a stable coin issuer that says, um, give me a dollar and I'll issue you this token. And whenever you want something, you, know, you can come back with the token and I'll give you back a dollar. Um, but what if that, what if they issue more tokens and they keep dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And then what if there's a run on the bank, right? the quote unquote bank, there's a run on the bank and then it collapses. And then that means that that has a ripple effect because then loans that, need to be paid, can't be paid. And that ripples and ripples and you get a financial crisis, right? That's your concern. And so the way that they would address that is by regulating what they would call depository institutions, right? As banks. Now, what I would point out there is um, to the extent you have a stablecoin issuer that is doing stablecoin business, I'm talking here about centralized one. Mm -hmm. So you said you have a centralized stablecoin issuer that isn't regulated by any body in the U.S. and they're doing business with U.S. people. Well, they're not, you know, they're violating some law. It could be a banking law, it could be a money transmission law. They're violating some law. So, you know, there's a way to address that. And if you look at um, other stablecoin issuers, like, for example, Gemini, they are New York, a New York trust, right? And they have to keep a dollar in reserve for every outstanding Gemini dollar that they have. And they are regularly audited and regulated by New York Department of Financial Services. Um, same thing goes for USDC. Um, maybe, you know, so they're regulated, uh, issuers of USDC are regulated as money transmitters. Um, but again, they're supervised by banking. So um, they have so, a one-to-one -one reserve requirement. Uh, they right. always have, yeah. yeah. So, it's not like they're not regulated. They are regulated. Then you have things like DAI. Mm -hmm. And in my view, there you're, you are regulated. You're regulated by the smart contract. 
<laughs> you can you see it and you and you know the um uh, uh the deposits that you make um uh, are locked up right so so anyhow i mean um i don't see the systemic risk that's posed by any of these things except the ones that are simply not complying with us law in any way so so like we would obviously agree with those arguments, of course, but this is a, a crypto podcast. But yeah. my, my, my question here is, it, it, I can't help but feeling like crypto is being picked on because we, we have this, right now, this tiny cottage industry and stable coins are used by what? Like a lot of crypto geeks at this point in time. There, there are other larger capital pools, but 20 billion or so. I mean, if we're talking about like shadow banking and shadow dollars, like what about the Euro dollar, right? Outside of largely US jurisdiction. This is what I can't kind of wrap my head around is why, is it because of, is it because of Facebook? Is it because of Libra maybe that the small cottage industry has suddenly risen to like the floor of Congress to take some action against? It just seems so early in the process. What's, what are your thoughts? So I, I definitely think that Libra is what spurred um, the U.S. Congress, as well as regulators and legislators around the world, to sort of you know uh, focus in on the concept of stablecoins, for sure, and not just from a prudential or systemic uh, perspective, but also from a um, money laundering and terrorist financing perspective. Right, mm -hmm. Libra definitely um, uh, draws that. Um, Peter, I mean, do you have other thoughts, Peter, on why stablecoins are being single? Uh, no, I mean, like I said earlier um, in the interview, I do think that, you know, there's a little bit of a mark, a, a tricky, sneaky marketing thing going on in the way the legislative language is drafted, because stablecoin is drafted such that it could cover all kinds of things like PayPal balances and Starbucks gift cards as stablecoins. And so in some ways, this is, this is, well, let's use a somewhat easy to villainize term because it's from a weird cottage crypto industry mm -hmm. in order to sneak in regulation of all kinds yeah. of non-bank dollar liabilities into a federal regime, which I don't think is a wise way to draft legislation, quite frankly, because yeah. and I should realize that the words on the page mean something more than what they seem to obviously mean they'll have to recalibrate. And that, that's not what you, laws should be written to be clear and intuitive. They shouldn't be written such that you need to be a, a, a JD or a JSD in order to figure them out. Yeah, and, and I should say that while um, uh, we're very happy that cryptocurrency has remained a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue, Libra was not that. Libra, the parties were unified in their contempt for Libra, Broad, <laughs> broadly speaking, right? There, yeah. there are people um, on, who maybe championed it a little bit here and there, but broadly speaking, both parties. And, um, and, and I don't think we can underscore it enough because we will not have enough time to get into a lot of anti-money laundering law on this call, but Libra was a severe disruptor of otherwise very good policy settlements within the anti-money laundering context. For, you know, from FinCEN, from the International Financial uh, Crimes Regulators, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, we had a really good situation where on-ramps to these protocols would be regulated for AML, 
but you know, individual users of these protocols would not be regulated for anti-money laundering purposes. And when Facebook announces that this Libra thing is going to be P2P and tons of dollar transactions for anyone with a WhatsApp account are going to be P2P, it definitely made AML regulators suddenly say, wait a minute, you can do P2P transactions with Libra? And then also say, oh, wait a minute, you can do P2P transactions with Ether and with Bitcoin. And all of that's happening outside of these regulated on-ramps. What should we do? And that's, that's not good either. So I want to turn the conversation to uh, where it's in my mind and for some, and it, it gets crazy. And for some reason, Rohan doesn't think this is crazy. And so I, I kind of, I want to read some quotes from Rohan that came out through either on Twitter or through other mediums. Um, he says, I think it's going to be uh, quite easy to find concentrated power, even in those networks on which regulatory pressure can be placed. But, and this is why the their uh, crypto Twitter, their head exploded. I'm not going to take their propaganda as gospel that every node operator should be considered prima facie, I'm going to butcher that word, prima facie immune from liability for any activity that takes place on the network those nodes maintain. And then another quote, this is a completely decentralized network. You can't hold anyone accountable unless, they, unless you hold the whole thing accountable. Is, this is what Rohan is saying about people that talk about uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin on crypto Twitter. Um, this is just saying that you think it should be possible for a large group of actors to a, a collectively engage in behavior that is unlawful for any one individual within that group to engage in, which I think is a non-starter from a financial regulatory perspective. So this Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's activity going on uh, in, the, in these networks, economic activity. Sometimes we're buying, like Bitcoin is buying drugs. Like sometimes Bitcoin and Ether and stable coins are used to do bad things. Uh, and the crypto industry puts up this, what Rohan's calling this, this veil of decentralization saying, well, yeah, you know, you use the software to do things, but the nodes that run the ecosystem aren't responsible for the economic activity that happens on them. And Rohan is saying that, no, they are actually responsible. And it's actually not crazy to say that they're responsible, no matter how many number of nodes there are. What's your guys' take on, on that perspective? Because Rohan is trying to just be like, you know, the party's over, like, no, nodes are responsible. Like, don't give me any of that BS. Like, if you're, if you're running a computer that processes a, a, a bad transaction, like, you are responsible. Is that, is that a reasonable take to have, or is that just completely harebrained? So let me let Peter kind of address that veil of decentralization thing. But before that, point out that what you started with that Rohan said, and by the way, again, you should have him on because I feel bad right. addressing him without having him here to, to mm -hmm. defend himself. Um, but notice what, he, what he's saying. Um, what he's saying is, look, the Stable Act um, technically would allow the, the, the government to go after individual node operators who had some interaction with a die transaction, for example. But he's saying it's not going to come to that, right? There are bigger fish, right? They're, you know, they're going to be the, I'm not sure who it is he thinks it is in, in the case of DAI, but in the case of a, uh, of a centralized stable coin, um, this, you know, this, the government will be able to go after that issuer before it goes after the nodes. So, he's, so in one sort of um, breath, he's saying, Look, you guys don't really have to worry about this, because even though all the, even though the law allows the state to go after you, they're not. 
you know, um, in my mind, you shouldn't write laws that allow, if that's not your intent, then don't write laws that allow that uh, kind of, right. a, 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 a fraud. Um, but I think he's right. Um, but I, you know, I, again, I, I think we already have, number one, I think we have already, um, good regulation in place that would address his systemic concerns. He would clearly disagree, you know, whatever. Um, but that would, that's one thing that's, but then you, what you do is you write laws that cover decentral, you know, sorry, centralized stable coin, coin issuers and you regulate them how you want to regulate them. Um, when it comes to die, I'm not sure who he thinks, um, I'm saying this genuinely, I don't know who he thinks um, is left to regulate, but the nodes and the users. Um, I don't think he means the developers of the software because, you know, if he does, and that's, you know, he wants to regulate speech. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Peter, do you want to talk about- and, and let's be clear, we'll get to Peter, but like, let's be clear on when we say the nodes, right? That could be individuals running ether yeah. staking nodes out of their house, individual Americans in their homes. But that's, running that's part nodes. of his point. That's part of his point when he talks about available decentralization. His point is, um, it, it's not as if there's nobody to hold accountable. There are real people who make up this network. Wow, wow, yeah. Peter. And 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 the disconnect there. So I don't think it's hairbrand. I just think it is. I don't mean to be um, dramatic because, again, I think Rohan has some genuine beliefs that lead him to these conclusions. But I don't think it's harebrained. I think it's totalitarian. Mm. Uh, it, it, it says, it says, look, there are bad things in the world, and we need people in government to have the unfettered discretion to go after whoever they need to go after to stop those bad things. And it, it the corollary to that is, as Jerry said. We believe that people in government will use that unfettered power wisely to only go after the lumpy, bigger actors in the space and not go after, you know, your uncle who's running an ETH staking node in their basement, who's a nice man, you know? But I don't want to trust, right. I don't know who it would be uh, at the end of the day, the FBI or the Federal Reserve or the FDIC to, to, to always use that power without using it in an arbitrary way and without using it in, a, in an effectively a totalitarian way. And, and what's missing here is that laws, so in, in, other, in other tweets where he talks about things like nodes, he talks, he makes a comparison to counterfeiting and says, well, counterfeiting is always illegal, whether it's a person passing a single $20 note that they know is counterfeit or whether it's somebody printing thousands of, of $100 notes. And we usually only go after the really bad counterfeiters. A, that's not true. Lots of disenfranchised poor individuals actually get arrested for passing a counterfeit note that they may or may not have known as counterfeit. Actually, that, 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 that's that happened a lot That was extremely relevant earlier this year. Yes, extremely relevant earlier this year. And B, um, I would say counterfeiting laws are very carefully drafted so that you have to prove that there is a knowing intent to defraud the person you are trying to pass the note to. Intent matters. Intent matters. And if you are participating in, in the Ethereum network as a staker or as a miner, or if you're a Bitcoin miner, you have no intent to further counterfeiting. Mm -hmm. You have an intent to validate a public good, a blockchain that has a, has a, has a ledger of 
hundreds or thousands of transactions that are hopefully improving people's lives with respect to things like identity systems, monetary systems, payment systems, and most of them are completely legal. We can't just crash down every legal barrier we have to allow people in government and to allow people to allow the police to stop every, every harmful act, even if it means stopping tons of unharmful or, or good acts. We, we, we can't live in that world. I don't want to yeah. live in that world. And you know, I should say that it's, there's a parallel here to that previous bill we talked about, right? So in both cases, um, there is this faith that the state will be able to do the right thing in all cases, right? So in one, in, you know, in, in the Stable Act, it's that we're going to give this, the state this really um, broad power but we trust that they're not going to abuse it. They're only going to go after the big fish. And in the, in the other one, we're going to have private digital cash, but we're going to trust this privacy board to ensure that. Um, you know, and I think that's just where we depart. Um, uh, you know, if men uh, were angels, et cetera, et cetera. It's the second time Jefferson's quoted in, in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a Jeffersonian friendly podcast, I suppose. Um, you know, one other, I guess, practical question based on what you're saying, uh, Jerry and Peter, is like, let's say that, um, you know, Rohan was, was, is sort of right, or like he's, he's successful, and basically the ETH nodes in the U.S. drop, right? Maybe they drop to zero. Well, outside of the U.S., there's still 8,000 ETH nodes that continue to run. And so, process die transactions. And process die transactions and process other US dollar denominated, whether it's black market, gray market, or whether other regulatory nation state regimes just simply allow it, right? So from a practical perspective, um, even if it were possible to completely ban or make illegal this sort of activity in the US, you can't do it across a like multilateral world with different regulatory regimes. And therefore, all you succeed in doing is kind of put the US behind on some sort of adoption track to something that, that could be um, essentially the internet of money or like kind of a, a next wave of, of innovation. I mean, does he, do they see that argument in yeah. play? Yeah, so I agree with you, with what you're saying. Um, I think what Rohan would say, and again, you know, this is- right. You know, again, have more. You're, you're doing great, Jerry. <laughs> trying to steal steel me. man. Um, I think what he would say, and I think he's right, is that um, yes, that's the point. What we're trying to do is marginalize these activities so that yeah, maybe in the shadows they're done by a few people, but this does not become a um, major mainstream thing unless it's being done by a regulated bank, right? right. Um, that is the point. And I think he's right. Um, right. I think, as I was saying before, while Ethereum, Bitcoin are unstoppable, you can marginalize it, right? Think of BitTorrent. BitTorrent um, hasn't been stopped. It's still there. You can go use it. But who, you know, BitTorrent has been marginalized, right? BitTorrent should have been um, really backbone infrastructure for how we move around data on the internet. And it's like this thing that is, you know, in the public mind is associated with piracy. And it really, as a result, um, uh, in the 
technology, you know, the technology in the corporate world, it's never really considered as a potential solution to certain problems because it never, you know, it's just been marginalized. And the same thing could happen in crypto. Another, another example is Tor. Yeah. Tor is actually kind of an interesting example because it's a product of US government research. Mm -hmm. And there was a deliberate desire to get the private sector and individuals using Tor because if the only people using Tor are US agents in the field, you can <laughs> identify that network traffic. If those US agents in the field are amongst a bunch of other randos in Iran or wherever else who are interested in internet privacy, then the US agents in the field have privacy. So Tor is another interesting example. I mean, you know, I think this came up on Twitter a couple of times. Should users of Tor, uh, should Tor relay nodes or exit nodes be held liable if people are accessing stablecoin networks through Tor? Um, I suppose under this bill they would be, uh, and I don't know how I don't know how the bill's supporters and uh, feel about Tor. You know, if they value privacy, they might like Tor, but this could outlaw Tor. But the 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 lesson from Tor is if you are a state, a powerful state in the world like the U.S. government. You do not want to, to ghettoize these new technologies because you will lose control over them completely. They will go to the corners and you will lose visibility into those networks and you will lose power over those networks altogether. Much better to play nice with these networks, understand them, utilize them for your own uses as, as a state and, um, and maintain you know, points of regulation like the exchanges, like the like the centrally backed uh, stable coins, regulate them for consumer protection and maintain uh, power and visibility into these systems. Don't and, send them away. Yeah, and foster um, development of industry on top of these networks that is American, right? If, if that's what you care about, um, that's how we won with the internet is that we fostered um, you know, development on the internet that was American. Should do the same thing here. Absolutely, guys. Yeah, hundred percent on your team with respect to all of these things. I, I guess maybe just two things to quickly uh, address some maybe some misconceptions, and then we can wrap this whole thing up about like kind of where David started, which is the the fight to come and how how folks can join the cause of Coin Center. You know, the first is the chances that this actually happens, guys. Pretty slim. Like this bill, does it? I mean, we, we've been talking about it because I think it's a very interesting angle, uh, obviously, but is this it's really going to happen? anecdotal at the very least. Yes. Yeah, th this particular bill, I would put, you know, it, it, the probability that it becomes law at low, right? I think there's a lot of things that would have to happen for this bill to, to make it all the way through. So, so I would say it's, it's pretty low, but um, similar stuff. Um, could happen. And the threats to nodes could come not just from financial regulation, it can come from other quarters, right? It could come from anti-money laundering regulation. So we always got to be, you know, on the, on the lookout. The, the second misconception maybe I want to address is what we're not saying in this, I think, conversation is that um, there can't be some sensible regulation around, say, stable coins, right? Yeah. It's not this, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you guys would agree that the U.S. could do things from a regulatory regime with, with stable coins. Any, any comments on that? Well, I think, well, you know, one thing we've advocated for for the last three years, which um, Representative Tlaib might find interesting, I don't know, 
is that the state money transmission licensing system, which is how a lot of these central asset-backed stable coins are regulated, like USDC, is a strange archaic system that you'd have to get a license in every state in the US where you have customers. So you have to accumulate like Pokemon, all 53 state and territorial, territorial licenses. And you get examined by each of those mostly independently. Some states coordinate, but you get like different people checking your books from different states all the time. You have to pass multiple criminal background checks. It's not sensible regulation. It's not good for the companies because the companies have to suffer these costs of regulation. It's not good for the users of money transmission services because some states, like I always pick on Alabama, have effectively very little uh, in the way of consumer protections. You, you can get a money transmission license there by merely posting a $5,000 bond, generally speaking, irrespective of the amount of money you're moving. So they're woefully underprotected. So why not get rid of this state-by-state -state approach, which is bad for consumers and bad for businesses, and replace it with a single federal money transmission license or an alternative license. So if people want to get out of the state licensing conundrum, they can get this better federal license that would have better controls and you know, more sensible regulations for, for the parties being regulated. I, I think that's a good approach. And, and we've advocated that for the last four years at Coin Center. So Peter, Jerry, we want to thank you for, for coming on the show. And we, we want to wrap up with this kind of just uh, bird's eye view of the, this whole conversation. Um, re recently, a uh, friend of the pod, Jake Stravinsky, tweeted out something along the lines of like, uh, the time to get your assets off centralized exchanges was the day you bought them. Then the second best time to do that is right now. Seriously, do it now. And that tweet actually kind of reverberated around like almost every single Discord channel that I'm in and, and all the chat groups because that Jake is, is not somebody to just like ring, ring a random bell. Uh, and then at, this came at the same time after um, Brian Armstrong talked, uh, made a tweet thread about um, uh, you know, ha having to KYC external accounts in relationship with uh, crypto exchanges. And so like, there seems to be something like boiling under the water with people that are very in tune to these conversations. And, and kind of like what we said at the beginning, the Stable Act fight doesn't really feel like the main fight. What is the main fight? Like, what are people worried about? Because there are definitely people that are worried specifically right now. Like, what's going on? Like, what do we need to be prepared for? Like, what should we be paying attention to? So, um, the, so here's one thing that occurs to me is, is that um, if you, one of the reasons we're able to be successful at Coin Center is that we're independent. So we're taken seriously by folks in government. The other reason is that we're able to be discreet, right? So um, if people in government, whether it's regulators, folks in Congress are thinking of doing something, um, we can go and provide them advice about that's a good idea, that's a bad idea, this is how you could improve it, you shouldn't do it at all. We're able to go in and give advice because they know that they're gonna get that advice in private. And um, if we start tweeting, we're not going to get invited back. <laughs> or or you mentioning something on a live stream, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so that's one thing uh, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what I would also say is, look, the Secretary of the Treasury has been very, um, has publicly said in the past that he's concerned that unhosted wallets um, could be he, he said new number to his bank accounts, right? So he's concerned about that. And, and FATF um, has sort of echoed that in their 12 month review in May. 
So um, that's definitely in the water. And look, to be you know, perfectly honest, yeah, unhosted wallets can be used by bad actors to do illicit bad things, just like email can, right? And so it presents a risk. And there are sensible ways to address that risk and really bad ways to address the risk. Um, so that's, you know, that's an area that I think, you know, um, concerns us. And, you know, we've been doing some writing about that. So. In defense of Jake, it's probably always a good time to get your money under your own. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, this yeah, true. crypto. <laughs> <laughs> not your keys, not your coins. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an evergreen thought for sure. Well, absolutely, guys. We really appreciate you sharing your insight, your insight today. This is a um, a fight that I think the the Bankless Nation can definitely support you on. Uh, some tangible ways to do that, guys, are go to the Coin Center, get Coin Grant. A dollar right. goes a long way. David, Just you should at least one dollar because it gets amplified by like six, sixty, seventy, eighty more dollars after the fact. Yeah. So if you don't know how this works, right? So your one dollar twenty-two. Excuse me. Oh my God. So your one dollar gift, like one die, one USDC, it doesn't doesn't really matter. It can be a stable coin. It can, it cannot be a Starbucks dollar. I don't think <laughs> we're not there yet. But if you give that, that gets amplified by one hundred and twenty x right now. And this is a, a, a fight I think worth having. We need voices like Coin Center in DC, just educating, just talking, talking to folks in, in Congress about these issues. So make sure you do that. We'll also include some resources for you, including um, Peter's fantastic article about the un, unintended consequences of the Stable Act, some other resources for you as well. But Peter and Jerry, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us for State of the Nation. Thank you. for having us. Very fun. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Take care. All right. Uh, Bankless Nation, this has been a long one, but um, it has been fantastic. As always, none of this was financial advice. Uh, ETH is risky, DAI is risky, so is Bitcoin, but this is the frontier. We're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Thanks.